0: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 Welcome back to the Holiday
1: Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. There is no season for movies quite like this one, for variety. Just like summer, you get a bunch of blockbusters. But with the kids home from school, you also get family movies. And with the Oscar nomination deadline approaching, you also get some prestige films aimed at rounding up some awards to help ticket sales. And Hornaday gets to see them all as chief film critic for The Washington Post. And happy holidays. How are you?
2: Same to you, Gil. I'm great. Thank you.
1: We're going to give West Side Story its own segment because there's so much to talk about, both about the movie and things swirling around it. So let's talk about the movies out for the holiday season. And as we do that, let's start with where people are going to see them. The theaters are open again, so that's the good news. The question is, over the last couple of years, have people gotten so used to sitting on the couch spending oh boy you know for the price of uh, two movie tickets you get you know three streaming services for a month are people coming back to theaters
2: right that it, the, the, these are the million dollar questions right facing the movie industry right now and there was actually a really pretty rich study done a few weeks ago by a firm called the quorum where they really looked hard at who's coming back, who's not coming back, who they've lost forever and that's an interesting number that's 8% of their respondents feel like they will never ever return to a movie theater which is good news because that's a relatively small number and that means the rest, you know, that other 92% can be ha- you know can be coaxed back, maybe even already are coming back but can be coaxed back if a few changes are made. I mean it, it looks like the top line items that are conditioning people's Decisions are health and safety, obviously, price. And to your point, if, I think that this new streaming habit has made people look at movie prices a little bit differently. They have been creeping up, concessions are always going up. It's still a relatively cost effective night out, you know, or, or a means of family entertainment outside of the home. But if people are now conditioned to stay, at home to watch these movies, that that is going to become more cardinal. And then the experience itself, and that means just the pl- how pleasant it is to be in a theater. I would say, in my anecdotal experience, just speaking with my readers and communicating with them, the other X factor is the movies, you know? I mean, I think... It's funny, one of the statistics coming out of that study is that young men are returning in greater numbers than anybody else and women have been hanging back. That could be because women, you know, as mothers and as caretakers and stewards of their family safety and also entertainment choices, haven't felt comfortable taking their kids back or sending their kids back to theaters. But another factor is that the movies that have been doing well this year really are geared toward young male audiences. So I think, you know, now that we're seeing this holiday season and a little bit more of general audience, family, fair, um, that we might, and then as children and young people are getting more inoculated, I think those, you know, we might see some shifts there.
1: Okay, so let's talk about some of the movies coming out now. And if we're going to talk about young men you know, actually going to the movie theater in the kind of blockbuster film that with special effects and 16 speakers demands to be seen in a theater, I guess the first thing we're talking about here is No Way Home. When you botched that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man, we started getting some visitors.
2: Exactly, exactly. And that has shown amazing legs pre pre-opening legs in terms of the downloading of the trailer and pre-orders of tickets that is really the hottest ticket of the holiday season and I guess you know even though I really love Tom Holland in this role and I love this iteration of the franchise personally I am getting burnt out on on the comic book genre and I do think it's it's become kind of that family film that you and I probably came of age with. Under the under the Disney banner, where they were just really good one off movies, you know that you could take the whole family to, and that's almost a lost art now. That has been kind of subsumed under the whole comic book genre, which I think is a little bit unfortunate because um, I would like to see a little bit more originality in that space. But that being said, it's a really well executed title and property, and uh, I have not seen it yet. I am eager to do so, and we'll see if it lives up to the to the to the expectations.
1: Yeah, but I'm also getting burned out from the cross-movie promotion as if, you know, back in the 1930s. Rhett Butler, from Gone with the Wind, decides, after the Civil War is over, to go west and fight Indians, where he teams up with John Wayne from Stagecoach. It's just, you know, after a while. Although, actually, you know what? I'd go see that movie.
2: (laughs) Where were you when they needed you, Gil? Oh, my goodness. No, but I know, exactly. I'm not born yet. (laughs) No, you're. I'm with you. I'm with you. I would... uh, I have almost reached my... Now, I say this. I always say, I'm done. I've reached my limit. And then somebody comes along like an Ant-Man movie and just charms the heck out of me. Or in this case, Spider-Man 2. And I I would even add the wonderful, um, into the Spider-Verse, the animated Spider-Man that came out a few years ago. It completely blew my mind. So I would never, I'll never say never again, right? I, I You know, I, I keep saying I'm finished, finito. I'm never going to see another one. And then they they pull me back in with their darn
1: creativity. Let's talk about, what are some of your favorite of the other movies that are opening this holiday season.
2: Well, I'm a big fan. You know, there's some interesting smaller movies coming up that that I would draw uh, draw people's attention to. Maggie Gyllenhaal, that the actress has made her is making her directorial debut with a movie called The Lost Daughter, starring Dakota Fanning and the great Olivia Colman. Children are a crushing responsibility. Happy birthday. And it's the adaptation of an Elena Ferrante story, the woman who wrote my, the, my brilliant friend books. And it's, it's about two women who encounter one another on a Greek island. And it's a psychological thriller about motherhood, if you can even kind of wrap your mind around that. But it's, it just has to do with maternal ambivalence, which I think is such, such an under-addressed under and interesting psychological subject. And both Coleman and Johnson are just so excellent in their roles. It's just a really intriguing, I think, kind of craftily structured movie and a very, very promising directorial debut from Maggie Gyllenhaal that will be in theaters and then ultimately on Netflix. One that's out now that I think, you know, I'm always looking for the charmer. (laughs) You know, I'm looking for the one that I can send people to almost without qualm or condition. And that probably right now would be Belfast, which is this... um, very personal autobiographical film by Kenneth Branagh about his growing up in Belfast in the 1960s when his parents were considering whether to move to England against the backdrop of inter-internecine fighting between Protestants and Catholics which as a little boy an 8 or 9 year old he really didn't understand but was influencing his life you know was conditioning every day of his life and it's just a beautifully filmed Movie and great performances from Jamie Dornan. Speaking of Dakota Johnson, her co-star from Fifty Shades of Grey, and Katrina Balfe, and the wonderful Judy Dench and Kieran Hines, and it's it's really it's it's heartwarming and an example of something I've picked up on this year, which is we're now starting to see movies that people made during COVID, you know, that that were really conceived and executed, and so many of them have to do with memory, and I I got the chance to actually interview Branna about this movie and and you know, he said the lockdown and that kind of time and space that it afforded him gave him the opportunity to reflect. And for all of these memories to kind of come to the surface, it had always been something he wanted to do, but he finally had the time to kind of, you know, these things do need time to kind of percolate. So I just think it's fascinating to see these memory pieces coming up that really have a reflective kind of meditative and um, wistful tone to them. It's it's really quite touching.
1: Anything that might my- think may kind of come out of nowhere and be a bigger hit than than people think or they're not thinking about it at all
2: yeah i mean honestly it's so relative right now i mean one of you know one movie that's getting a lot of buzz is um the power of the dog which is directed by jane campion it's it's adapted from a thomas savage novel it's about two ranching brothers in 1920s montana and when one of them decides to marry the other brother goes into this kind of psychotic swirl (laughs) and the psychotic brother in this case is, is um, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in an absolutely chilling performance, beautifully directed by Jane Campion. She filmed it in her native New Zealand, but I think she does a pretty good job of, of kind of evoking those Western vistas. It starts out with that kind of big scream, you know, cattle drives and men on horses and, and lots of kind of strutting and fretting about in, in leather chaps. But then it does become this kind of Hitchcockian psychological thriller where you're not sure what's bugging this guy, but then it does become clear and it becomes a battle of, a, of the wills between him and another character. And it's really, it's really, it's kind of, you know, it's almost like a um, companion piece to, to The Lost Daughter in terms of the, uh, the kind of subtext and the psychological machinations that ensue. But it's a very intriguing film.
1: Interesting. Anne Hornaday sees them as chief film critic for The Washington Post. and always good to talk to you and happy holidays.
2: Same to you, Gil. Thanks so much.
1: We'll talk with you again, Ann Horn, today when we talk specifically about West Side Story. That's ahead on the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. If there is a single movie that has stirred up the most interest and even controversy this holiday season, it is a remake that is also Steven Spielberg's first musical, the remake of West Side Story. It's gotten off to a very slow start at the box office with older and female audiences still not coming back to the movie house, so it could be a flop, or it could be like another musical, The Greatest Showman, which had an even worse opening weekend, got terrible reviews, but ended up making nearly half a billion dollars. Anne Hortaday is chief movie critic for The Washington Post. Anne, good to talk to you again, and let me ask you the most basic possible question. How is it?
2: It's wonderful. I'm I'm so happy. Yay, verily I say unto you. It works. And I know people are skeptical and I know so many people who love the original Broadway show and the 1961 film just or wondering like why remake a masterpiece, but if you're going to ask that question, the best people to answer it are Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner. They've done an ex just an excellent job of retaining those qualities that did make West Side Story a masterpiece at the time, and then they have tweaked it so judiciously, um, so as not to interfere with those fundamentals, but just to kind of bring it into the 21st century in a way that will, we hope, maybe connect with a brand new audience, but also, I think, make the existing audience feel like they've seen an outstanding revival of a beloved show that has even been made more vibrant by some very subtle, graceful aesthetic choices.
1: Yeah, then let's get to talk about that because that is uh, both a lot of the joy of it and a lot of the controversy about it. So let's get into it. The original, though it was about a Puerto Rican gang, had a total of just one Puerto Rican in it, Rita Moreno, who is also in this. Natalie Wood was not only not Puerto Rican, she wasn't Latina, she didn't even sing. Her part was handled as it was in so many musicals by the great Marnie Nixon though she did handle what did handle the dramatic parts well. But now some people are even complaining that though the Puerto Ricans are played by Latina and Latino actors and actresses, uh, they're still not Puerto Rican. And so that's going around.
2: I was actually not aware of that, of that criticism of it. I mean, I do. I I attended a screening in Washington that happened to be organized um, by a Latino group within Congress. And so they they were talking a little bit about the production and how Spielberg actually went to Puerto Rico to do some casting and I don't I can't remember the actual number of singers and dancers and background you know not even background but supporting players um that they that they were able to cast there but to your point Moreno is even an executive producer of this of this production so obviously she's going to bring all of her moral authority to bear on that question and make sure that every good faith effort is and was made Um, to do right by the material and to do right by the communities at the same time. So I guess this might be a case of not wanting the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And it's never a bad idea to make sure people are always still trying. But I would hate for people to kind of see it through one, that one lens and discard it through that one lens at, at the expense of so much other value that I think it really does
3: bring.
1: And for people, it's also addresses some of the changes, wondering, wait, Rita Moreno's in it, what does she play? She's obviously not going to be Anita anymore. They've taken out the candy store owner, you know, the place where the gangs would meet, and kind of given Rita Moreno that role, although in a completely different context. And so that's one of the things they did. She's a small businesswoman, something that wasn't seen at all in the initial West Side story. So there have been a bunch of changes like that.
2: Yeah, but I will tell you, even though that sounds like a big change, it's so seamless. I just found it to be very organic and unforced. To me, one of the great joys of this production is the fact that she's in it and she is given her due in a way that I found to be deeply deeply moving. And I and it it almost constitutes spoiler territory, but she owns, I think for me the most moving moment of the film. Another grace note to me, Another big change, but that felt so kind of organic that, that it didn't it didn't draw attention to itself is the fact that the the Sharks, the Puerto Rican gang, they all speak Spanish with one another and there are no subtitles. And it just, we, we don't need it. You know, I mean, people who speak Spanish will enjoy that. There's lots of jokes and kind of in-jokes that people will get. Those of us who don't speak Spanish, it's, it's no big deal. I mean, we can get it from context. We don't need to know exactly what they're saying to understand the meaning. And it's just... It's just such a, uh, I thought it was such a, a well judged change um, that just makes the whole thing feel very lived in and grounded, uh, again, without feeling forced or billboardy. And then we haven't talked about the, I mean, really, truly, to me, the big, what makes this movie work comes down to two things the performances and just the filmmaking itself. But we'll start with the performances. I mean, Spielberg has just found. Fantastic actors to to inhabit these roles. Um, Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler play, play Tony and Maria, with really kind of like that purity, you know, that you want from those from those musical theater. You know, they have beautiful voices. They kind of, they have the right look and the right demeanor and the right comportment. They just handle their roles so capably and gracefully. But then, to me, the real spirit of the thing came from the supporting performers, especially Ariana DeBose, who's the new Anita. And a young man named Mike Faist, who was revelatory as Riff, the the leader of the Jets gang, he is just out of this world good. And it's always so exciting, especially in a musical where you need to be a good actor. You need to be a good singer and a good, you know, you got to be that triple threat. And when you see somebody kind of come out of nowhere and nail it, it's just thrilling. And so for me, he was kind of the main, you know, the story coming out of it in that in that regard. But everybody is is excellent. It's just it's. And then the filmmaking, I mean, we're we're talking about Steven Spielberg, who can tell, who's a visual storyteller unlike any other, working at the top of his game in a new genre.
1: Well, let's talk about that for a second, because there were people who had doubts about that, and I've had to remind them that if they had advertised the original West Side Story, directed by Robert Wise, as from the man who gave you the body snatchers with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, West Side Story, <laughs> what would that have said? Exactly.
2: They are comparable. You're exactly right, Gil. We're talking about that vanished age of yeoman directors. And, you know, Wise was a consummate d- utilitarian player who could handle just about any genre and never really put his personal stamp on, on it other than competence, you know, other than just, you know, doing it well, which is huge. And I feel like Spielberg, even though I think he has maybe more of a personal stamp, but he has such facility with the medium that, and when you think about like he did Minority Report, he's done Lincoln. He's, you know, he's too, he's, he's playing with genre. I remember one of my favorite interviews with him was after Saving Private, it was actually Minority Report because that came after Saving Private Ryan, which was his World War II pick. And, you know, he talked about that, like wanting to kind of reproduce that career path of those, of those great guys back in the forties and fifties who could just do it all, had to do it all. Um, so, but the camera work here with uh, Janusz Kaminski, his longtime cinematographer, it's so graceful. It's just, It's just absolutely balletic and and gratifyingly, even though they do move the camera in a way that's very swooping and kind of romantic, when people dance, they stop and they let us watch the dancing, which is one of my pet peeves in modern movie musicals is that they cut too much and they edit too much. I just want to watch when people are dancing, leave them alone, leave the camera alone give me that wide shot, show me those bodies in space. And that's what they do. So they, they just, they just move through this story so poetically and it's full of such color and life. I, I really think, you know, I we were in another conversation, we were talking about those all rounder movies that I can send people to, especially during the holidays when you tend to want to find a movie that everyone will enjoy, you know, all generations. And so, seriously, this is the one, you know, I mean, this is like, you can, I I can't see anyone coming to this movie and not getting something out of it. It's just, it's really entertaining.
1: And you can put too much weight on movies and a musical. I mean, people still go on TCM and watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing through movies that completely ignore the depression. And (laughs) it's like, you don't watch them now. And people didn't watch them then, interestingly, going, are you people crazy? What is all this smiling and dancing? And who can afford this orchestra and that tuxedo? And where did that dress come from? It's the flippin' depression.
2: That's right. And those were the ones, obviously, you know, I always think of that great scene in Sullivan's Travels. Remember? You know, I mean, that was what people wanted to see. That we want some escape. But we also, I mean, I guess the difference with this one is that it does claim to be grounded. You know, it, it does kind of take place in the gritty city streets so that it's not a white telephone movie. It's not, you know, a feather boa and top hat movie and if it if it were then we would judge it on that and not ask it to be something it doesn't want to be. But in this case it does want to be kind of tough, you know, and it does want to kind of redefine that fantasy space as somewhere in between fantasy and reality and I do believe that they attain that. Again, that's through performance and and I will point to to Face's performance especially. I mean his his performance as this guy feels so kind of naturalistic in terms of that James Dean energy, that kind of bristling anger and resentment, and that feeling of being left out and left behind, that's all very, he brings that right to the surface, very palpable, doesn't overact it at all, but it's just there. And then he can break into song, you know, and it just feels like, of course, you know, that's that, that guy would do that. And um, selling that, that's hard, you know, to to kind of be able to do both at the same time, or at least in close proximity. And I think that principle kind of Sustains all the way through the film.
1: So, West Side Story—it's the remake, it, and it is. We should point out for all the people saying, "Oh, people aren't going to love it as much as the original film." It's sixty years since the original film, and uh, most of the people alive never saw the original West Side Story in a movie theater, but just on a small TV screen. So, this will be a new experience, and a lot of the audience will have never experienced the first film in a theater, anyhow. So, uh, some of this debate, people are, you know, going. Huh? So, Ann Hortida is the movie critic for the Washington Post, and thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Gil.
1: This is the holiday special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. At this time of year, many African descendants here in the United States and around the world celebrate Kwanzaa, a week-long holiday derived from the seven principles of African heritage. And here to share with us the history and meaning of Kwanzaa is Dr. Julianne Malvaux, an economist, commentator, and author. Juliana is also the president emerita of Bennett College for Women. Julianne, thank you for joining us for the holidays.
4: Gil, it's great to be with you. Habarigani.
1: Well, let's talk about everything that has to do with Kwanzaa. It's a relative newcomer to the scene. I think most of our listeners have heard the word. I'm also going to take a shot that most of our listeners other than hearing the word and knowing it's celebrated by people of African descent around the world have absolutely no idea what it's actually about. Got it started just a little more than 50 years ago, so in a way it's a little understandable, but it is widely celebrated now and obviously that kind of acceptance means it was filling an unmet need. So, tell us how Kwanzaa got started and how its celebration has spread?
4: Well, Dr. Molana Karinga, who is a professor at uh, Cal State uh, Long Beach, started it um, not as an alternative to Christmas necessarily, although some see it that way, but really as a in Guza Samba, a way of looking at the seven principles that really uplift our communities and our foundation of our communities. We say Habari which is like "What's up," and every day you say the principle of Kwanzaa. So on December 26th, you would say Umoja, which means unity. On December 27th, you would say Kujichagulia, which is self determination. So every day in the Kwanzaa celebration, you lift up the principle of Kwanzaa. Day three is Ujima, collective work and responsibility. My favorite day, of course, as an economist, is Ujamaa, which is Cooperative Economics. Nia is Purpose. Kumbha, Kumbha is Creativity. Imani is Faith, and that's the last day of Kwanzaa. So every day, you should greet someone and say Habarigani, and they will respond with that. Uh, Dr. Karinga, who is just a brilliant cultural visionary, created this um celebration in the 1960s, 1967, 68. We're looking at uh, 50 years of Kwanzaa. Uh, In fact, the United States Postal Service has recognized this with two stamps. There was a stamp that was done uh, some years ago. There's a new stamp that's been done this year. And so it's really about getting away from the commercialism and looking at what communities are lifted up from. To me, I mean, I celebrated, I've celebrated since college um, and it's important to me. It is a balm in Gilead, I always say. It's a way of stepping away from what we do. I believe in Christmas. I am a Christian. I don't believe in Xmas. I am not a consumerist. And so Kwanzaa really raises a whole lot of ways for us to connect. Every year, Gil, um, I'm with my Atlanta family, and we have young people, old people. It's really kind of cool because I've seen children who are three, who are now 18, Mm -hmm. have gone to college, and they come and they speak and they talk, and we talk about what it means to be African in America, and that's important. We don't get affirmed that often, unfortunately, as African and American. And Dr. Karinga has made it possible for us to really go into ourselves. It's an amazing holiday. It's an amazing celebration. It's an amazing foundation and something to do at the end of the year as you renew and refresh. we
1: also talk among the seven principles about faith. And as you said at the beginning, you're also a Christian, but people of African heritage around the world celebrate many different religions. I'm sure there are probably some people, as there are with people of all races and creeds who have abandoned regular religious practice. So when we talk about faith, what are we talking about?
4: We're talking about believing with all our hearts and our people and our parents, our teachers, our leaders, and the righteousness of the victory of our struggle. We talk about faith. I mean, I always think you know, I live in a space that I call a space between hope and despair. I am both a Christian and an Afrocentric woman, but I'm also an American. But between hope and despair, it means that on one hand, you have to believe in the best. Despair means you have to fear for the worst. And so when we do faith, we say that only God, and there is an a symbol that is the ginamé, which is only God, and it's only God that gets us there.
1: You talk about a symbol a moment ago. In addition to the seven principles, there are several important symbols incorporated into the Kwanzaa holiday. Can you tell us about more of those?
4: Sure. We have the kanara, which are the uh, candles. It very much represents something that is in the Jewish faith, but it's not the same thing. But it's useful to know of the seven candles. Three are uh, red, three are uh, green, and the middle one is black. And so it is about looking at the seven uh, principles. Um There are so many other ways that we lift up our faith, our heritage, our history, and our purpose. I um, celebrate Kwanzaa. On January first every year, with my Atlanta family, I have a family. Uh, I have family all over the world. Uh, God is good to me, so I have family all over the world. But my Atlanta family includes my two godchildren and my sister friend Cheryl Points Brown. And every year, we bring fifty to seventy people together to celebrate Kwanzaa. I've seen children who were not able to hold a piece of paper now leading us and lift every voice and sing, which we do every year. Which, of course, as you know, is a Negro national anthem. And in the middle of that, we do have all of our Symbols and all of our his- history, all of our creativity, and all of our excitement. And for us, it is a bonding way to start the new year off.
1: Julian Moivo, author, economist. Julian, thank you so much for being with us in the holiday special from CBS News Radio.
4: Thank you, Gil.
1: Welcome back to the holiday special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. There is no more popular thing to read at Christmas or movies to watch than A Christmas Carol. It was so popular in Charles Dickens' time, he wrote it in just a matter of about six weeks, that he spent years going around the world, especially here in the United States, doing a one-man version of it, for which he wrote a special script. This presentation is done yearly to support the upstart crows of Santa Fe, which teaches middle school and high school kids how to perform Shakespeare. Now we're going to give you a part of that from the very beginning when Scrooge meets the ghost of Jacob Marley. Obviously, Dickens played the women's parts as well, and when women do Dickens' script, they do men's parts as well. So this is from a production in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where, well, I play Scrooge and one of the narrators, actress Rhoda Bodson plays one of the others, and actress director Carol Farkas plays the other. So, Let's listen to a part of A Christmas Carol.
5: He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs.
6: Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for its being very dark.
1: Quite satisfied, he closed the door and locked himself in.
5: Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Humbug, said Scrooge, and
1: walked across the room. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap and sat down before the very low fire to take his gruel.
6: As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a bell. A disused bell that hung in the room and communicated for some purpose now forgotten with the chamber in the highest story of the building. It was with great astonishment.
5: And
1: with a... Strange, inexplicable dread.
6: That as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. Soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house.
1: This was succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below. As
5: if some person were dragging a heavy chain
6: over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below.
5: Then
1: coming up the stairs. Then
6: coming straight towards his door. It's
1: humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it.
6: His color changed, though, when without a pause... It came on through the heavy door, and a specter passed into the room before his eyes. And upon its coming in, the dying flame leaped up as though it cried... I know him! Marley's ghost! The same face! The very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots...
1: The chain he drew was clasped about his middle.
6: It was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made. Poor Scrooge observed it closely.
1: Of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His
6: body was transparent so that Scrooge observing him. And
1: looking through his waistcoat
6: could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him...
5: Though
1: he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes... And
5: noticed the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its head and chin. He was still incredulous. How now? Said Scrooge, caustic and as cold as ever. What
1: do you want from me?
5: Much. Marley's voice. No doubt about
6: it. Who are you? Ask me who I was.
5: Who
1: were you then?
6: In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... can you sit down? Asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it, then. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses?
1: Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are.
5: Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes. Nor did he feel in his
6: heart by any means waggish then.
1: Truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror.
5: But how much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head? As if it were too warm to wear indoors. Its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. Mercy! He said. Treadful apparition.
6: Why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind. Replied the ghost. Do you believe in me or not?
1: I do, said Scrooge. I must, but why do spirits walk the earth, and
6: why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide, and if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. "'It is doomed to wander through the world, "'ah, woe is me, "'and witness what it cannot share "'but might have shared on earth "'and turn to happiness, ah!'
5: "'Again the spectre raised a cry "'and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. "'You are fettered,' said Scrooge, trembling.'
1: Tell me why.
6: I wear the chain I forged in life,
5: replied the ghost.
6: I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? "'It was full as heavy and as long as this, seven Christmas Eves ago. "'You have labored on it since.' It is a ponderous chain.
5: Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Jacob! He said imploringly. Old
1: Jacob Marley, uh, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob.
6: I have none to give, the ghost replied. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge. I cannot tell you all I would... A very little more is permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me! In life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. And weary journeys lie before me. Seven
1: years dead. Uh, Traveling all that time? Mused Scrooge. You travel fast.
6: "'On the wings of the wind.'
5: "'It
1: might have gotten over a great quantity of ground in seven years.'
5: "'The ghost, on Ah! hearing this, set up another cry and clanked its chain hideously.'
6: "'Oh, captive, bound, and double iron! cried the phantom. "'Not to know that ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures for this earth must pass into eternity, "'before the good of which it is susceptible is all developed.' Not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. "'Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one life's opportunities misused. "'Yet I was like this man! I once was like this man!'
1: "'But you were always a good man of business, Jacob,'
5: faltered Scrooge, "'who now began to apply this to himself.
6: "'Business!'
5: cried the ghost, wringing its hands again.
6: "'Mankind was my business!' The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business.' The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business.
5: It held up its chain at arm's length, as if that were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time
6: of the rolling year, the specter said, I suffer most.
1: For those of you who have forgotten, a few more ghosts down the road. Ebenezer Scrooge turns out all right, although I don't want spoiler alerts going off. Rhoda Bodzin, Carol Emra Farkas, and myself in a scene Dickens himself wrote for presentations of A Christmas Carol, thanks to the upstart crows of Santa Fe.org and the Hutton Media Center in Santa Fe, where that was recorded. You're listening to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. The holidays are here, and so is Elizabeth Graves, the editor-in-chief of Martha Stewart Living, with some timely advice. Don't get so wrapped up in planning all these get-togethers of family and friends that you miss the point of them. Elizabeth, happy holidays to you. Thank you. Yeah, and this is something that happens. You can get so wrapped up in the planning and then the doing when everybody's at the house that you, you kind of miss them.
3: Yes, it's so true. I mean, the holidays are the most wonderful time of the year, but also often the most overwhelming time. And, you know, we really have to focus on enjoying the now. Um, because what the holiday season really is about is coming together. You know, it's a time for reflecting and being restorative. Um, you know, it has a lot of different meanings with whatever you're celebrating, but, There was nothing ever written that was saying that holidays should be stressful, and yet they are for people. Um, So at Martha Stewart Living, we really try to give people lots of glorious ideas, of course, to make it special. We want to make it special, but make it stress-free. And I think it really starts with setting your priorities of what you want your holiday to be. If it's really about being with family, then make sure you're doing that. Make sure you're not getting distracted from that. If you really want downtime, you know, it makes it easier to pass on things that might come along if you know what you want out of the holiday. So that's one thing we always say is really, what do you want out of it? So you can pass on things that might make you feel more harried than
1: holiday. Here's, here's a tip that sounds awful to people, and, and yet it's worked for me, which is instead of last-minute shopping like the last couple of days, oh, I haven't gotten this for them and, and all of that, I forward them the tracking number. <laughs> it's, it's coming. It's, it's on coming its way. To your home. I don't have to run around.
3: It's on its way. And, you know, I really think that um, hopefully the holidays gives us all a chance to be patient with each other and kind with each other. Yes. And the thought and the intent is there. So, you know, we also think like, don't stress if 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 something falls through <laughs> forgiveness is big here
1: well one of the things that happens over the holidays is you sometimes get information you did not know about relatives and friends and it can be that you're both big fans of uh some tv show where they're going to drop the new episodes and instead of just getting together on facebook or someplace and uh and discussing it afterwards and inv- invite somebody over to watch it together
3: definitely and Study after study shows that person-to-person contact and actually picking up that phone and talking to someone, maybe not texting, maybe not um, always through social media, is really what is making people feel more connected these days. So, you know, we'll experience it over these holidays, but keep that momentum going and pick up the phone and invite someone over. It it can be a lonely time of year for people, so it really um, is a great time to start the new year off with lots of one-on-ones, stock your, key, your tea cupboard and have your best friend over to watch a movie. And I think it's it's in our attitude of, of how we embrace it. But post-holiday, it certainly isn't a time to hibernate. Um, you know, people, it's true, they don't really um, pick up the phone as much anymore. And sometimes I think it it's like the gym in a way, or going to a party that at first you're like, I don't know if I want to do this. And then you get there, you get on the phone, and you're so happy you did it. And you're like, yeah. why don't I do this all the time? That one-on-one conversation and exchange, you just can't get that kind of metadata from a text or an emoji. You, you really, I think you know how someone's doing by seeing them and hearing them.
1: Elizabeth Graves is the editor-in-chief. Elizabeth, happy holidays to you again. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is the Holiday Special from CBS News Radio.